This is a, a special Sunday for me. Um, three years ago was my first time to preach here, and uh, so I started on September 8th of uh, three years ago, and so this is an, an anniversary for me. Thank you for putting up with us for that much time and uh, allowing us to journey with you uh, through this uh, season of, of this church's history. It has been a blessing for us. Uh, we also celebrated Annabeth's second birthday on Friday, which was a great fun. Uh, she had a blast, and uh, we got her a swing for the new backyard, and uh, she would not get off of that thing. Uh, and would just swing and swing and squeal and laugh and was just hysterical. And then we went in to go do the, the cake and we lit the candles and suddenly this girl wanted nothing to do with what was going on. She, she distanced herself, did not want anything to do with those candles. I guess we have just ingrained in her a fear of things that are hot or something. Uh, so this very quiet and timid child, uh, no, said no one ever, and uh, was, was wanting nothing to do with blowing out these candles. And, and she would not blow out these candles. Her sister had to do it for her. Um, and she just wanted nothing to do with that. And, and it made me think about a birthday party that Joan Rivers went to. Um, yes, this Joan Rivers. Uh, she went to a birthday party, and you know how birthdays have themes, right? You know, sometimes they have like a pirate theme or, or some sort of cartoon character. Well, well, the party that she went to was a Botox theme. Uh, they were having a Botox birthday party, and the Beverly Hills socialites were getting together, and as, as party favors, they were just doing Botox. Uh, that's, that's what they did. And so it was great, a very successful party. They had lots of fun until they brought the cake out with all the candles, and, and all their lips were so swollen shut, nobody could blow out the candles. <laughs> and so we visualized these, these ladies just trying to blow out these candles. <laughs> we really get obsessed about appearances, right? We, we, we want to look good, and the older we get, the more desperately we start grabbing at things to try to figure out how to, to look a few years younger. We like to think about uh, things like liposuction and tooth, teeth whiteners and spray-on tans and anti-wrinkle creams and hair coloring and hair implants and bad diets and exercise gadgets. We want these things to make us look and feel younger, and if it will do it quickly, even better. And yes, we've got an amen back in the back. One that I just discovered in preparing for this was something called threading. Okay, so threading, not what you think. Not, not the threading to get your eyebrows straight or get the, the, the little hairs off of your chinny-chin-chin, but threading where they actually, it's a cosmetic surgery where uh, for 45 minutes they will actually run threads through the muscle, through the loose skin to pull it up. Yes, that was my response. Ken was like, what? And so actually, apparently it's supposed to be kind of painless and quick. You can get it done in 45 minutes if you've got the right money, but, but they will run these threads through your face to pull up the loose skin and get things straight where they're supposed to be straight. We will do some crazy things to look younger, won't we? Are you getting in line for that, Gene? Are you, is that? Okay, good. All right. Like, ah, oh, yes. And so we have this desire to look younger, and, it, and it's really fed by our culture's obsession with appearances, right? 
that, that, that culture tells us that there's certain things that are beautiful, that there are certain things that are strong, there are certain things that are successful. And, and the culture tells us this, and, and as adults, we buy into this, even though we tell our kids otherwise. Like, we instruct our kids, don't listen to the other kids on the playground making fun of you. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Those, those things are not what's important. We coach our kids that way, but really, we have a hard time as adults really living into that truth, don't we? That we really buy into some of what the culture tells us about what is beautiful and what is successful. And so we struggle through these things. One writer puts it this way, peel away a few layers of psychological skin and you uncover a fear that to grow old is to grow unlovely. And to grow unlovely is to become unaccepted. And to become unaccepted is to become useless. And so there's this fear in us of becoming useless. And so we look to be younger. But that's not what the Bible tells us. That's not what God speaks to us. That's not the truth that he gives us. Because typical of what God does, he flips everything completely upside down, right? The reality of God's kingdom is the opposite of the reality that we experience every day here. It's an upside down kingdom. And so today our text is coming from Psalm 139. And it's a text that I didn't choose. It's a, che- it's a text that chose me. And so through the summer months that I've been preaching and over the last couple weeks, and, and even in the welcome as I read through the Psalms, I've been going through the lectionary. And I've had a lot of questions of what the lectionary is because it's not something that we use a lot in, in our heritage here. And the lectionary is simply a schedule of readings that churches around the world are using. And so churches all over the world today are reading through Psalm 139, that God knows you and that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And so we're joining together with, with this great heritage of Christian faith in looking at this text today. And it's a text that I wanted to avoid. It's a text that I didn't want to spend time on today for reasons that will be made evident a little bit later. But let's read through this as we think about the appearances that we have and the things that we think are important and the things that we think are valuable. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake... I am still with you. 
And so these words speak into where we are at as individuals, as where, where we're at as families, as, as a congregation. And we look at this, and we're only focusing on two chunks of it here. But as we look at this, we have to remember this is poetry. Okay, so this is a certain genre that we read, and, and it's not a theological treatise. Okay, so we can't dig into it too deeply to think about things like predestination and topics like that. But it's speaking truth about who God is and his love for us and his desire for us and his relationship with us, that we are known. God knows us. He sees us, every part of us. And the words describe how well God knows this psalmist. The sitting up, the laying down, the far away, the close by, from from the front and from the back. There's nowhere that the psalmist can go to be away from God. There's no distance that can separate the two. And so being known by the creator of the universe is not a small thing. There are very important people in this world that don't know me, and they could care less. But God, he knows me. Not only does he know my name, but he knows everything about me from the time I was formed to the time that I die, and forever he will know me. When we are vulnerable and when we're honest with somebody and they really know who we are, if we, we open up ourselves to someone and they know us better and more intimately than anybody else knows us, how freeing is that in that relationship? That you don't have to hide anything, you don't have to pretend to be a certain way, you don't have to put on a certain front, a certain face, you don't have to act in a certain way, you don't have to polish things up. They know you for who you are, and you can just relax in that. It's such a freeing relationship to have. And that's the kind of relationship that we have with God. That he knows us so well, that we can just be free to be with him and free to be in his presence. God knows us so well that he was there at our creation. I love this imagery of of God knitting things together. This, This grandmother with knitting needles putting threads together to form something amazing. And so God is taking these strands and putting them together and knitting them together and forming them into life creating us and designing us. Maybe that's what those DNA strands are that are all wound up in us as he knits them together and he forms us. And so this truth is so incredible. It's so powerful. We we think it might be just a little bit comforting, but the psalmist says, no, this is too wonderful for me to even comprehend. If he were to say this today, he would say mind blown, right? That our mind is just blown by the goodness of God and the greatness of God and the infiniteness of God. That he could know us in that way. And so how does God see us? Does he see us the way the world sees us? Or does he see us in some other way? You know, for us, we get consumed with the outward appearances of things, which is not unique to an American culture, right? When the Israelites said, we want a king, give us a king, who did they choose to be their king? Saul. And why did they choose Saul? Because he was tall. He had a certain appearance. He had a certain thing about him that made him leader-like, king-like. It was an outward appearance. And so when it came time to replace Saul, 
Samuel was given these instructions. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David was so insignificant that he was not even brought to the lineup for selection. He was this runt of a boy out with the sheep and was not at all qualified to even be considered. And Samuel had to ask, is this all of your sons? We're missing one of them. And David comes in, and this is the one that is chosen to lead. Eugene Peterson describes David this way. David provides a large chunk of the evidence that disabuses us of the idea that perfection is part of the job description of the men and women who follow Jesus. Perfectionism is not in our job description. More narrative space is given in our scriptures to the story of David than any other single person, and there, is, and there are no perfectionist elements in it. The way of David is, from start to finish, a way of imperfection. David gives us this great story from his very beginning and throughout his reign as king that uh, perfection is not what God is looking for. And external characteristics are not what God is looking for. God is looking for something in the heart. And what was David's, how was David described? A man after God's own heart. He was a complete screw-up. He shouldn't have been king. Made mistake after mistake. But... He was a man after God's own heart. God was obviously looking at something very different than what we look at. Mike Cope summarizes this idea in this way. It says, in, in a world where people look at the external qualities of a person, God is a heart specialist who values those qualities that have little to do with what people look like, how they perform, and how smart they are. That's not the scale that God is using to judge us and evaluate us. So the world is looking for external qualities, but God is looking for something that is totally different. He's looking into us. When it comes to valuing human life and human beings or, or any of the people that God places around us, the outward appearance shouldn't be what's important. That's not what matters to God. We are wonderfully made. And that's a statement that applies to each and every one of us. Fearfully and wonderfully made. And to think otherwise is to be a complete insult to the Creator. When you are served a fine dish by a cook or a chef, and you immediately grab the seasoning and start seasoning this dish that has been prepared for you, it is a complete insult to the person who's prepared it for you. At least taste it. For me, if you are going to order a steak and you're going to put steak sauce on it, that is just wrong. <laughs> like if it's cooked right and the meat is right, you shouldn't need a sauce to, to, to go all over it, Laura. And so it's an insult to the person who created it. And so when, when we evaluate one another on these external factors, when we evaluate one another on these worldly considerations, it's an insult to the Creator. Because the Creator said, I created them that way. I did that on purpose. That's how I designed it. 
And now you want to go and insult it? We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And so this provides us this comfort, this peace, this self-worth to know that God sees us, God knows us, and he designs us and creates us. He knits us together. And so it should be a great encouragement to us today to be able to read through this, to know that he knows everything about us, that he has searched us, he surrounds us, he forms us. That's the God that we serve, that you are not an accident. You are not a mistake. There's a reason God has knitted us together. The psalmist would want us to take delight and take joy in the truth that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are made in God's image. And there's no amount of beauty products or cosmetic surgeries that can improve upon God's image, upon God's design. But we spend so much attention on those outward things, don't we? We judge one another on those outward things. We spend time and energy and about $8 billion a year on those external beauty things. Many years ago, there was a television show called Life Goes On. And in that show, there was a character with Down syndrome. And so week after week, you would watch this show, and the the audience was brought into this family experience and experienced this humanity of Corky. His facial features and his speech patterns were different than what you would expect to see with somebody on TV. And it would be inspiring to watch life going on for this family. And so maybe, like Corky, all disabled people, they know they have no choice about their experience, or no choice about their appearance. And they accept themselves in a way that maybe others haven't learned how to accept. We see stories even locally here of things like Tim's Place, people who who go beyond what culture would say they're capable of doing to do incredible things and impressive things. And so now this is where this message gets really personal for me. And as I experience three years of preaching now, the hardest sermon I've ever delivered. I shared last week the importance of memorizing scripture, and I challenged you and quoted Bruce saying that that means you have to do it, to memorize Psalm 23. And I hope you've at least been spending some time reading it. And I want to continue to extend that challenge to memorize scripture and memorize Psalm 23. I took a class at ACU the, first, or the second week of August, and the professor um, challenged us, <laughs> meaning required us to memorize Psalm 23. And it seemed like a tedious task at first. We only had an evening to do it, and the next day he asked us to pause every hour on the hour and recite Psalm 23. And it was one of those exercises that was not incredibly meaningful in the moment, but as the days progressed, became more and more meaningful. Because there is a line that says, even though I walk in the dark valley, I will fear no evil. That God is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. And so you read through those words, and 
those, the rod and the staff are not too comforting whenever there's nothing wrong. But the Monday we got back from Abilene, I ended up in a free fall into a dark valley. We had our midterm sonogram that day, and we're expecting everything to be normal. We've had two normal, healthy pregnancies. We've already had one sonogram that looked good. And so we were going, I wasn't even planning on going. My dad said, hey, are you going? I was like, well, I guess I probably should. And so we decided to take the girls with us and go in to view this sonogram. And we weren't expecting problems, but then the doctor starts talking about limb deficiencies. And the bottom fell out. And we sent the kids out and continued with the doctor to look for this right leg that was nowhere to be found. And so we spend time with the doctor and we go in and see the genetic counselor and we realize this pregnancy is not going well. The baby's in the fourth or fifth percentile of size. The baby's missing a leg. We don't know what else is wrong yet. Come back next week, we'll do an amnio and we'll do more ultrasound. And so we went back in last week and we, we look around more and look to see what's going on with this baby. We find out it's a baby girl, but no leg. Maybe not a right kidney. We're not sure what else. And so the heart looks good and the brain looks good and the structure looks good, but we're at a fourth or fifth percentile of size. We're looking at a baby that doesn't look and may not act or may not even survive the way you would expect a baby to look and act and survive. And so I'm given Psalm 139 to preach, to say God sees you, God knows you, that his hand is on you, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God knits us together in, our, in, in the womb. And so... For this baby girl, God has knitted her together in a certain way and has a certain plan for her, and God sees her, and God knows her, and God loves her. And so these are the two weeks that I've had. And that's why preaching at Gar's funeral hit so deep into my heart. And that's why I was so emotional last week about being thirsty for the living water that God provides. And now I'm struggling with how to preach at my grandmother's funeral tomorrow. As a friend loses a mother to cancer, and I have to attend that funeral on Saturday. And I look out into the room, and I see so many stories of hurt and loss and grief, some very, very recent. As you have a grandson struggling to survive as you lose a father and a life change for your mother, a loss of a father, a loss of a son, a loss of a marriage. We find ourselves in those places of hurt. And we ask the question, God, are you here? God, where are you in that and we read in Psalm 30, 139 that God knows us, that he places his hand on us. He places his hand and he knows the diagnosis before we do. 
He knows the hellos and goodbyes. He knows the hurt and the pain. And we hold on to that truth. It doesn't mean that we don't cry a bucket full of tears. It is okay to do that. It's okay to ask those questions. It's okay to wonder. It's okay to just be mad at God. He's big enough to handle that. We know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We know that this baby curl is fearfully and wonderfully made. And so this becomes the most personal and the most emotional sermon illustration I've ever had to deliver. And as I was weeping over my computer last night, there were things I just couldn't even write and things that I had to delete and things that I had to say, I'm just not going there today. And Laura and I struggle or we, we've struggled with how to share this and when to share this and who to share it with. And then that lectionary gives me Psalm 139. And so this is obviously challenging for our family. Some of you can relate in various ways, but it's especially difficult for us because week after week, we have to get up, we have to lead. We have to preach, and we have to teach, and we have to sing, and we have to pastor, and we have to guide and counsel, all while we are journeying through this dark valley ourselves. And so there's a part of us that just wants to come in here and worship and pretend like nothing's going on. We want to come in and we just want to be normal. We don't want a lot of questions. We don't want to be the focus of attention. Because we're not in this place to have focus on, on us. We are called to, to lead and bring you into the presence of God and to discern where you're at and what you need in our times together. But we know that we have to be honest and we have to be vulnerable. And I'm not afraid of tears, as you well know, because <laughs> this is the reality that we're in. John Claypool was a pastor whose daughter died of cancer, and as she was fighting for her life, he had this to say to his congregation. Please do not expect any great homiletical masterpiece. Homiletical is a fancy word for sermon. Do not look for any tightly reasoned original creation. Rather, see me this morning as your burdened and broken brother limping back into the circle to tell you something of what I learned out there in the darkness. And Mike Cope, whose mentally handicapped daughter died at the age of 10, he journaled this as a minister, as a preacher. He said, I'm in a dark hole. I don't know how deep it is or if it gets even deeper or if it is ever possible to get out. I can't breathe. My friends have been my ventilator. And so I use these words to express my lack of words, not really knowing what I need right now, not knowing the reality that's ahead of us, but I'm disoriented and I'm foggy. My, not, my stomach is in knots. I can't breathe. But I tried to make these words of Psalm 139 real. And I hold on to them as the truth. Even on those days that I don't feel like that, this is the truth. 
How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And so as I wake up this morning, I know that God is still with me. And for those days that I don't want to get out of bed, and those days where I just want to pretend like it doesn't exist, and the days where I want to become a workaholic and completely distract myself from it, those are the days where I could say, I am still with you. And so we find ourselves asking the question, God, are you there? And things like Psalm 139, God says emphatically, yes, I am here. Even there, even in that dark spot, even in that death, even in that divorce, even in that diagnosis, even in that chronic pain. And I've been there from the beginning, and I will be there forever. And so we're going to have a time of prayer. This time... This is something that I deleted to not say, so I may regret this. Over the last three years, I've worked very hard for this time of prayer that we have. It is one of the most important parts of our assembly to me. Now, I'm sure that's probably not theologically correct because communion is the most important part of our time together. But for me, our prayer time is critical. My greatest experiences in worship gatherings have been witnessing the body of Christ coming together to lay hands on one another and pray for one another. In those times of hurt, in those times of pain, I have images burned into my memory that make me weep today of the family of God coming together to pray. And that's why every Sunday, I say, let's stand. And so let's stand now. And I say, this is a time of prayer. It's a time, of us, it's a time for us to encourage one another. It's a time to be with one another. It's a time to confess to one another and lift one another up. And there are at least a dozen other stories of pain and grief and hurt and sickness and illness that are going on right now in this room. And so for those of you who are asking the question, God, are you there? I want you to come down front right now into the front of this room. And we're going to gather around you and pray. God, are you there? Thank you. I'm going to ask the shepherds to come down. Others, who else? Others asking the question, God, are you there? It could be pain. It can be sickness. It can be loss, it can be hurt. For those of you who want to, I want you to come gather around this group. Lay your hands on somebody, extend your hands out. God, we declare, even if we don't feel it, even if we don't believe it right now, we declare that you see us. You know us. You have created us. You have formed us. And God, we, we declare this from the inside of us, deep within. God, that the Spirit cries out for us and groans for us because we don't even have the words to articulate this. God, for, for the death that we've experienced, 
for the sickness that we are experiencing, for the pain that we are experiencing, for the injuries, the hurts, the emotional pain, the loss, the grief. God, we lift this up to you. God, we know that you see it. And we pray for comfort in that. When we don't get the answers that we want, when we don't see you work the way we think you should, when you, when you don't move those mountains that we pray for you to move, God, we know that you are there. We know that you are in it. We know that you were a part of it. And so, God, each person who is feeling this question right now of, God, are you there? And there are a lot of them. For, for that question, we pray that you will answer that today and that we will see you, and that we will experience you, and we will know you in ways that we never have before. And so, God, comfort our grief, comfort our pain, and in our lack of answers, in our moments of uncertainty, in our discouragement, in those days that we don't want to get up, in the days that we want to just pretend like nothing is happening, God, we pray that you will give us a peace within us. God, answer these questions for us and show us who you are and show us that you are there with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.